Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios. Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with me another Tuesday evening reflecting into the great ancient Christian thinkers. We are here this Tuesday to talk about St. Jerome once again. And uh, my typical sidekick, uh, John O'Hare, is not with me this evening, but I do have George Wing with me, who you know very well, I think, at this point. So, George, it is great to have you with me another Tuesday. Good to be here, Joe. George, we have the opportunity to spend a second week in this towering figure of St. Jerome. And what we did with uh, last week was we kind of laid the foundation. Certainly we talked about this being the first figure in the post-Nicene era, in this era where we are no longer necessarily talking about the golden age of doctrine. But out from that great council, where is the church headed? So we have um, the opportunity to talk about um, some real greats, and of course the first being St. Jerome. Well, and of course, it's a period when the canon of Scripture was being discussed in the great church councils, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rome, Hippo, and Carthage, mm-hmm. Yeah, where we, where we have the canon of the New Testament come together. And as, as you note that, we had the chance to talk about that a, a, a little bit and, and highlight, George, something that I think gets um, overlooked quite often when we talk about the coming together of the canon of the New Testament, the terminology these were really seen not so much as um, New Testament books as they were seen as uh, covenantal documents. And as we discussed last week, these were uh, the documents, the letters, and of course the Gospels that were being read during the liturgy. Now we think about New Testament as a series of books, but if you were to go into the New Testament itself, Mark 14, 24, and Paul echoes this in his, his letter to the Corinthians, is that the word and or phrase New Testament was not in the first two, three centuries synonymous with, with a 27 books as much as it was synonymous with the blood of Christ. This is the blood of the New Testament. So we really highlighted that and why the canon of the New Testament really was an outgrowth of, of the liturgy. You know, what is canonical? What is lawful? The bishops coming together in agreement basically with the first pile of books, mm-hmm. the ones that they, and letters, the ones that they read in, or that were read in all the churches, mm-hmm. the second pile of books, the ones that some allowed to be read within their diocese and others not, and then the third pile that are the ones that they universally rejected. But here also, too, a time in the empire when there's a cultural shift occurring, a linguistic shift, whereas previous to Jerome... Um, the centuries before Jerome, Greek would have been widely spoken throughout the empire, perhaps even as an, a, a policy of state, because the Romans would have seen themselves as inheritors of the great Greek heritage. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the Septuagint, or 70, um, the Greek, what we would call the Greek Old Testament, was what was read throughout the Mediterranean and also quoted in the Gospels. I believe at least three of the four Gospels yes. quote largely from the Septuagint. So, if not exclusively, but you have a change where Latin in the Western Empire is becoming the predominant language. So, the church responding to a pastoral necessity, that is, 
translating the scriptures into the vernacular. Mm-hmm. And the vernacular at that time, of course, being Latin. Yeah, very important point there, George. I think it was St. Athanasius that we talked about last week. He he was talking about, you know, what you're talking about now, this pastoral necessity. And how important is this for us today? We have spent so much time here on air, George, talking about the new evangelization, which in so many ways is taking what is so incomprehensible to so many and making it comprehensible in the language that we use, in the art that we employ. Here we have a 4th century, 5th century version of um, the new evangelization back then, right? Let's take what might not be understood to uh, those people out there and, and make it more intelligible and more attractive, huh? And not only better understood, but also something that's culturally edifying. Because one of the problems or challenges that Jerome faced in translating the uh, scriptures from the Hebrew, not from the Greek Septuagint, but from the Hebrew, was rendering them in a Latin style that was phrase for phrase rather than word for word. This was a decision that he had made, adopting a more dynamic equivalence translation or approach to translation than a, uh, or linear equivalence. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, these sorts of questions come up today. And the, um, the result, of course, is this masterpiece in Latin, whereas previously the, the translations in Latin were more coarse or vulgar and mm-hmm. and uh, not aesthetically pleasing. So aesthetics are very important. And, of course, this came up, we were talking before the program about the development of the King James Bible, the mm-hmm. great Protestant translation, Yes, that when that was uh, first presented to the scholars, they listened to the translation because the King James was to be the the pulpit Bible of the Anglican Church, and it needed to reflect a... Um, uh, a use of the language that was both approachable, but also had a certain eloquence to it. And, um, of course, Jerome, having been a, a student of Latin in Rome and something of a Ciceronian, yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah, 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 yeah. and uh, there's that great uh, dream that he had, apparently as a teenager, mm-hmm. when before God's judgment seat, God asks, who are you? And he says, I'm a Christian. And God responds, no, you're a Ciceronian. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. um, Jerome needs, he, he gets the message that he needs to spend more time studying the scriptures and yeah. less time studying <laughs> elegant Latin. And as you're talking, there's something uh, that strikes me, George, is this dynamic of listening. There was something very important to St. Jerome that should never be overlooked, and that is the science of sacred scripture. Um, and that was always caught up within the context of sacred tradition. So what does that mean? Well, the Mass is uh, the privileged locus, the privileged center of sacred tradition. It is where we have a conversation with the past, right? It is in this dynamic of listening that we would be enlivened in our hearts and empowered in our spirits uh, to be more bold and more faithful in, in our Christian journey of faith. He would make a point to say in a number of his letters, be careful not to reduce sacred scripture to something that is just personal. It is always at the same time communal. He offered up for us a reflection on Trinity. You know, the Trinity is personal, but at once communal. So this is very important for St. Jerome, lest we slip into this uh, mindset that sacred scripture is not something to be read. In the new evangelization, one thing that we cannot forget is uh, what a restaurateur will tell you, or a, or a great gourmet chef. Presentation is everything. Yes, yes. And you put 
the, the, the meal is prepared and it's prepared on the plate in a way that is inviting and pleasing. And we know from the scriptures, faith comes through hearing. And mm-hmm. we know this from our own personal experience. It's very, very important that the scriptures be couched in a language that is approachable but eloquent. Mm-hmm. And St. Jerome, of course, r- was the perfect choice for that, to render those translations because of his eloquence in Latin, his facility with the language, but also his deep heart knowledge of the Christian faith that comes through his life of prayer and his monastic practice, mm-hmm. his commitment to live deeply the Christian life in prayer. And I think in the new evangelization, we need to be very aware of this, is we present something to the non-believer in a way that is inviting, in a way that is beautiful, in a way that, uh, an eloquence that speaks of something beyond this world. Yeah, and as you're talking there, I'm reminded of one uh, von Balthasar. Our listening audience might be a little familiar with this name now. I've quoted him a few times. You know, we, we would always speak of the transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness, in that way, truth, mm-hmm. beauty, and goodness. What von Balthasar does, he says, you know, uh, not to, of course, diminish truth and goodness, but in the spirit of evangelization, we ought to start prioritizing beauty for what it is. Mm-hmm. There's something to be said about that kind of aesthetic arrest where we are just beholding what is beautiful. And that certainly then in turn opens us up to what is truth and what is good. I just came back from a trip to Spain, two weeks in Spain, and uh, culturally overwhelming. One of the great delights was being able to return to the Prado during my free time on the next day. I'm envious. Uh, <laughs> it, it was incredible. I mean, there, there are no words that can describe it. But to be able to sit in front of these masterpieces, uh, many of which have deep, deep religious intent and are wonderful meditations on the themes of Scripture, and to be able to enter into the contemplation of those passages of Scripture or those themes from Christian life and, and doctrine, like the four last things, is an example. Okay, yeah. It was a re- really remarkable experience. But part of it was, it was these truths were served up in a way that was so compelling and so beautiful. Yeah, an image has the power to evangelize the heart. It just does. That's why it's so necessary for us, George, to be mindful of these things as we talk about the new evangelization, because certainly this has to be um, at the heart of it all. And I believe Jerome was was aware of that. Correct me. Three translations of the Psalms? Yes. Three. He wanted to get it right, and his spirituality matured. He wanted to to render the beautiful Psalms of David in a way that was elegant and compelling and memorable. There is a phrase that is tied with St. Jerome that I think often gets overlooked because, as we talked about last week, this nature that he was endowed with, as Benedict XVI puts it so eloquently, this intemperate nature, he's a bit rough around the edges. The phrase that's tied with St. Jerome is this, he had a Christian sensibility. What does that mean? It means that he understood the language of what we're talking about now. He had a deeper sense of how to communicate uh, that beauty that belongs rightfully to God. And for all of this, as we were talking about this, George, you go into these letters of his, and he was quite a popular figure. So he was a spiritual director to many. And what you would find often in these letters of his was 
this need to be in love with the word of God, like we were in love with someone. And he would say, be in love with Jesus Christ. Be in love with the word of God and let your spouse speak to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for St. Jerome, sacred scripture should be your spouse. I love that. Um, this was the kind of thing that, that he was present to. Uh, go deeper in your faith, fall more in love with your faith, and let uh, your spouse speak to you. He was undoubtedly acutely aware of his shortcomings mm-hmm. as a person. And rather than hold back, he allowed, in a sense, those shortcomings to be his vehicle, or God allowed them to be his vehicle to draw him closer. Amen. In other words, it didn't just instantly or miraculously heal uh, Jerome of his irascible temper, mm-hmm. but instead he allowed that to be the stumbling block or the stumbling stone that put Jerome on his knees at mm-hmm. appropriate moments to listen to God's word mm-hmm. and to listen to the voice of the Spirit speaking within him. So we can, you know, we can praise God for our shortcomings. Amen. Yeah, we we were talking a little bit about this last week. How we have these shortcomings, we have these weaknesses. And these weaknesses, as Paul reminds us, not only become our strengths, mm-hmm. but at the same time, are reminders of our need for God. And God uses this for his greater glory. Well, and these are the things that we bring to Christ's cross. Having been baptized into Christ, we join Christ then with all of our failings on the cross as we surrender everything to Jesus. And so... St. Jerome reminds us, as we're talking about this, to go deeper in our prayer, uh, go deeper in our relationship with the Holy Spirit, so we then might render a clear understanding of the Word of God. One of the things that you find in his writings, along with this spousal language, is that you cannot understand the Word of God if you do not have a living relationship with God in prayer. In one letter I was reading, he probably said it ten times over, only in and through prayer with the Holy Spirit will you have an understanding of the Word of God. Paul talks about this. You know, we cannot come to understand the beauty of the faith, the whole faith, without a living relationship with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And he would always be mindful as he was giving spiritual direction to his directees to read the biblical text in light of the bigger picture. George, there's one response where I believe the name was Helvidius. He's, he's making the case for Mary not being a perpetual virgin, right? And so St. Jerome gets a hold of this letter, and many people were begging him to respond to this letter. And as he would say, I would not waste time with this borscht man. <laughs> and finally, he takes up the letter and responds to them. And I loved what he did. He responded to all of the erroneous insights that this Helvidius was offering up. But he did it in such a way where he was bringing together the whole of the Old and New Testament Mm -hmm. so as to teach at the same time. One of the common objections that we hear today and Helvidius was bringing up is is the language of, you know, Jesus Christ having, having brothers, huh? In the New Testament, we read the brothers of our Lord, right? Well, in the Greek, we know brothers as adelphos, which literally translated is a cousin or kinsman. Right? And he makes the point, well, let us go back to the Old Testament, where in two separate accounts in Genesis, we find the language of Adelphos being used in its, in its Hebrew variation. Uh, the two specific accounts, I believe, are who? Lot and Abraham, Jacob and Laban. 
in both accounts, these are not brothers, yet we have that language being used. They're, they're, they're kinsmen, huh? So if you go to the Old Testament and you read scriptures, old in light of the new, new in light of the old, we will gain a deeper understanding of, of what's going on. The firstborn son. If he's the firstborn sequentially, that means there's the secondborn and the thirdborn, right? But he says, no, we have to read this in light of the Old Testament. Who was the firstborn son? It wasn't always sequential, right? We see this with um, Isaac and, and Ishmael. So, yeah, and in this example, firstborn son, George, was more about gaining access uh, to the father's inner court, to the father's property. We read this in light of the bigger picture, in light of the whole, and when we do that, we'll gain a deeper understanding. And for Jerome, what was important is the love that would be the natural outgrowth for sacred scripture the deeper you went into sacred scripture. The points that you're bringing out underscore the need to read the scriptures in the mind of the church and with the church fathers, but also, too, greater appreciation of footnotes in a Bible. Mm. And uh, one of the great blessings we have as Catholic Christians, our Bibles are printed with footnotes that explain things, and you have cross-references, and it's possible to avoid certain arrows of interpretation by allowing great scripture scholarship to help us out. I think that, that the situation, like it translated Brothers of the Lord, you know, points out the difficulties that translators face and certain at times limitations of, of, of one language versus another. I know Jerome faced that with the Lord's Prayer. One translation, I believe the one from Matthew, he speaks of the daily bread as being super substantial bread because he, believed, he didn't think that daily bread yes. fulfilled the message, mm -hmm. all right, or uh, gave a more expanded or a, a deeper view of what Christ was speaking about. In the Lucan gospel, the very same prayer, he does render it as daily bread. So these are the sorts of uh, challenges we face. It's important that when we read our English translations that we understand that these are translations done from, you know, another language, okay, another time, and Yes, the Holy Spirit will prompt us to receive certain things at face value, but others are going to require some study. Mm -hmm. And it's imperative to understand Scripture doesn't just interpret itself, that we need to enter into the mind of the church and, and also request the assistance of the Holy Spirit. You know, St. Jerome was keen to the figure uh, origin. When we are going to sacred Scripture, we do have to be mindful of what origin teaches us of what Jesus Christ himself teaches us, right? What's the passage, John 5, 39? You search the scriptures because in them they bear witness to me. On the road to Emmaus, what is he doing? He's showing them that he's the new Moses. When we read sacred scripture this way, uh, again, we come to appreciate the beauty of the whole. And, and certainly, George, as you were talking there, um, it would be important to, to note that. Well, I believe in his life, uh, his own experience and his uh, developing maturity caused a shift in his approach. Initially, his commentaries tended to be more allegorical, you know, uh, featuring in on the symbolism of Scripture and allegory of Scripture. Mm -hmm. And then later on, perhaps as a result of his contact with the Jewish scholars in, in you Bethlehem, know, Bethlehem yeah. there's, a, there's a greater emphasis on, the, on history and on customs and traditions. I believe that this is one of the things that one can see developing in time. So part of that is his, uh, his growing knowledge 
and then also his contact with the you know with the Jewish scholars who themselves would be deeply connected with their their tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for those of you out there who are listening to this radio program and want to get to know more about Saint Jerome and and his commentaries, arguably the greatest commentary out there is known as the New Jerome Biblical Commentary, and and he really does in that commentary focus on. Uh, that literal sense, and again, by literal sense, um, what I mean to say is the sense that takes up the historical context and all of the mm-hmm. cultural milieu and, and everything that's involved there. Uh, that was, yeah, George, very important to him, and, and still, you know, 1,600 years later, still very important for us today. You'll go to any seminary and find that as a, um, as a primary resource in mm-hmm. studying sacred scripture, so uh, very important for him. George, I was hoping to talk a little bit about a few other letters, one specifically where he's writing to parents, and he's really focusing on the importance of raising little ones uh, with a sense of discipline and how that opens them up at a very young age to the wonder and the beauty of Christ. And in this letter, he talks about educating them in moral principles. He talks about educating them in, in the right and the wrong and the yes and the no. And I thought that be, to be very important for us today. Um, there's a tendency to forget how important those early years are in the world of formation. He probably reflected on the treasure that his father bequeathed him, mm-hmm. and that is a Christian formation and a father's example. And, it, it, you know, many centuries later, Babe Ruth had something to say about religious mm-hmm. instruction for young people. Mm-hmm. And, of course, mm-hmm. he had been raised as an orphan. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was, a, I think, a, a Salesian brother who was a great baseball player and was something of a mentor for Babe Ruth. But Babe Ruth described it as a sturdy little chapel mm-hmm. that is built around a child's heart. Mm-hmm. And it's you can make mistakes in your life, but you always know where to return to. Mm-hmm. And it's um, the other day, my wife and I went over to our local indie theater, and we saw a movie that had been highly acclaimed entitled Boyhood. Mm. Well, the title is sounds sweet and charming, but the reality of the film was much different. I think the film was misnamed. Mm. But one of the things that's extremely painful is, and the film was shot over a 12-year period, same actor playing the boy who you know grows into a young man before your eyes, and um, was um, this sort of rudderless upbringing and um how sad that was i mean the first time anybody in his life ever presented him with a bible even spoke of spiritual things were his step-grandparents at his 16th birthday he gets a red letter bible Mm. of course it was part of the um, uh the um the movie was not so much watching the movie was listening to the audience Mm. which might be people of a different persuasion than we are Mm. who perhaps saw that as sort of quaint Mm. All right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for my wife and I, we're seeing that that's probably the most profound part of the movie yeah, yeah. was that at some point in his life, someone presents him with God's word and pointed out to him that the red letters, those are the words of Jesus. Mm. And um, those of us who who received a um, some sort of religious instruction as young people can be very, very thankful for about eight or nine months, I, I lived in the Washington, D.C. area, and uh, I'm a big baseball fan, so I went on a quasi-pilgrimage to 
where Babe Ruth played baseball. And it was deeply, deeply moving, the many stories that were told about that brother who took in um, Babe Ruth. And certainly relevant to our discussion today, because if there's one thing that has kind of been a common denominator, George, with all of these church fathers, it is the influence of one of the parents. Striking. One has only to contrast Jerome and Nietzsche. Mm. Here Jerome goes off to Rome, and he's not very old, maybe 12, 13 years old when he enters into Latin classes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the greatest scholars there in, in Rome. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's a very impressionable age, and maybe he sows some oats for a year or two, or three. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that early religious instruction, he responds to that, and, and he comes home to the faith and seeks baptism. And as a sign of his repentance, he also... Uh, will go into the catacombs to remind himself of the last things. Mm-hmm. There's an incredible passage here where he, he talks about you know going into the catacombs. And it's a way of penance, and I think reminding him that the flower of youth, which he would have experienced as a teenager, is uh, ev- ev- evanescent, okay? Yes, it yeah. fades rapidly. Yeah. Um, but the um, Nietzsche, on the other hand, goes off to study, and here he's had this great, you know, upbringing, I think, or upbringing, I believe his father was a Lutheran pastor. But he's one that, although the seeds are planted, um, at some point he rebels and ultimately meets an end, I believe, as a result of a venereal disease mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. madness. So getting back to St. Jerome, yes, uh, you know, the, the, the importance of instructing youth in the faith and providing a good, powerful example, and of challenging them later on when, you know, if they happen to go in astray to reflect on that, and reflecting, too, on those end things. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jerome, you know, maybe Nietzsche didn't have a catacombs to visit. Sure, sure. But this one, the, this one section here, do you mind if I just read this? You know what, please do, do and yeah, you will, what we'll do, George, we'll, we'll use this reflection as our wrap-up. I think okay. that would be, that'd be good, yeah. Well, in iconography, Jerome is oftentimes depicted with a skull. That's not unusual in medieval art, but no. that is typical of, of a painting of Jerome. You can always tell Jerome. Uh, quote, I would, often, I would find myself entering those crypts dug deep in the earth with their walls on either side lined with the bodies of the dead, where everything was so dark that it almost... Almost it seemed as though the psalmist's words were fulfilled. Let them go down quick into hell. Here and there the light, not entering in through windows, but filtering down from above through shafts, relieved the horror of the darkness. But again, as soon as you found yourself cautiously moving forward, the black night enclosed around, and there came to my mind the line of Virgil. Now, I'm not going to read the Latin, but I'll read the translation from Virgil. Hmm. On all sides round, horror spread wide. The very silence breathed a terror in my soul. That skull, whenever you look at a painting of Jerome, the skull mm-hmm. sitting there, uh, he was a man who in youth had, you might say, sown some oats. Mm-hmm. But he realized that youth is quickly passing, and he needed to apply himself to those things which are eternal. And we have, of course, this great masterpiece, the Latin Vulgate, the commentaries on the scriptures, and even to this day, centuries later, this saint to edify us. Amen. I mean, he, he does offer us more than just a commentary, more than just the Latin Vulgate. He, he has, uh, by some measures, he has to offer us more than any other church father. He had written so much, if not if St. Not Augustine. Well, George, thank you uh, again for the gift of your time. As always, uh, much appreciated. Let's go ahead and wrap up with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.